And it seems like every four, every four years, you know, we have this big thing come up because we've got this big uh, worldwide event that everybody in the world turns their attention to. The biggest sporting event uh, in the world. It's the Summer Olympics. And 2020 is the Summer Olympic year. It's, it's Tokyo, the Summer, Summer Olympics in Tokyo. And uh, so it's going to be from July 24th through August 9th. Uh, over those two weeks, we're not only going to be able to see, you know, for all the different things from uh, different networks, multiple networks that are going to show us all these sports that you never, never watch except for once every four years. But what's interesting is that they also will probably profile all these different athletes. You know, how did they get to the Olympics? And what's interesting is that anytime you read about or you watch any profile about Olympic athletes and you hear something of their story, well, you realize that it's not just that they're there because they have natural ability. Well, there's a lot of people with natural ability, and you've got to be naturally talented to get in. But there are a lot of people that are naturally talented that don't get in. What sets these people apart isn't only their natural ability, but it's their discipline and commitment, this radical commitment to the training, to the process that often goes over years where they'll move to different places. They'll live in places far away from everyone. They'll, they'll get up early in the morning. They'll, you know, they'll put their bodies and drive it to the limits of endurance. It's everything, even what they eat, how they sleep, everything. And, and you hear these stories and you think, you know, what drives these athletes to go to such extremes in their training? You know, saying no to all these things that other people are saying yes to, to, you know, to literally drive them to push their bodies, their minds to extreme measure. And the answer is hope. Now, that might not be what you expect. Uh, it seems like a strange answer, but it's actually an answer that, that I'm using it in the biblical meaning of the term. It is hope. It's, hope is the only thing that drives them. It's the one thing that drives not only the top athletes to train in this way, it's the thing that drives anyone to pursue anything that's great and difficult. And when I say hope, what we're talking about is we're talking about a goal that they're pursuing. They're driven by the hope, by the dream, by the dream of making the Olympic team. They're driven by the dream of, you know, walking into that stadium, of winning that medal, of, of standing on that platform and hearing their national anthem played. And the clearer the vision of that goal, the clearer their hope, the more they're going to be driven. It's a clearer vision of hope when somebody, where that's so real to them, that's what drives them to say no to sleeping in and, and saying no to giving up when they get tired. That's what drives them to push through their bodies to the point of breaking. Because the fact is, is that when they, what drives them is that there's a more real yes. What they see is the yes of the dream. And I'm so driven by that dream that I'm able to say no to all those other temptations, all those other things that I would so easily want to give into. Now, that may seem like a strange introduction, especially as we're talking about a message on, on heaven. But it's actually not something that I've came up with. It's not my own analogy. It's actually one that the Apostle Paul came up with. We're going to see later on in 1 Corinthians 9 that he uses the imagery of an Olympic athlete and talking about their discipline and said, what is it that drives that athlete to that pursuit of, of disciplining their body, of beating themselves in a sense, to, to win that, that, it's the goal to win that, that, that medal, that, that, that prize. And he says, in the same way, that's, that's what should drive us as believers, that we should be driven by, by that, that hope. Now, for the past few months, we've been looking at the Apostles' Creed. And, and what we've been doing is we've been using that as an outline of our study. And, 
And the Apostles' Creed, for those, again, some of us have grown up knowing that, saying it, and we're familiar with it. Others, it's something that was kind of unfamiliar with. What it is, is it's the oldest summation of the foundational teachings of the Bible that the Christian church has. In its earliest form, it goes back to 140 AD. And it's not written by the apostles, that's not the claim, but the early church formed it and gave it that name because they saw it as a summation of what the apostles taught, as a summation of the foundational teachings of the Bible. And, uh, and it was a summation of the teachings that the early church agreed on from its very founding. And through this series, we've not really been studying the Apostles' Creed, but we've been using it as an outline and, and looking at these main ideas of our Christian church's belief, the Bible's teaching, and then, and then diving into the Bible and seeing what the Bible says on that subject. So this morning, we're coming to the last part of that outline, the last statements, where it proclaims, I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. Now, it's not about Jesus being risen. That, that actually we studied earlier. This is talking about what we believe about end times, about our ultimate destiny, that we believe as followers of Christ, all who are followers of Christ will ultimately be bodily resurrected, will be given life eternal with God in heaven. Now, when the Bible talks about these things, what, one of the things that we realize that are going to help us see where the, where the Bible says it is, it is it uses certain terminology to describe it. And the most common terminology is it describes hope, that, that our, our promise of our future resurrection and eternal life, the Bible describes it as, as hope. And the idea of, of hope in the Bible is vastly important. We don't talk about it that much, but it's something that the, that's throughout the New Testament. In fact, I'd encourage you to go throughout the New Testament, do a word study, see how often it is, see what the Bible says about it. And, and the Bible teaches consistently that it is vital for us as Christians to have a clear sense of our hope. In fact, let me show you one passage that I think is very familiar, and you see this. Probably one of the best-known passages or, or chapters in the Bible is 1 Corinthians 13. In 1 Corinthians 13, Paul talks about, you know, the, and defines love, what the Bible teaches about love. And at the end of the chapter, he says this, Now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. So in here, he's saying that, that there are three foundational elements that are at the core of our Christian walk, our, our relationship with God. And they're faith, hope, and love. Now, what's interesting is that we talk a lot about faith. I mean, how many sermons have you heard about faith? And we talk a lot about love. That, clearly, that's a huge emphasis. But, but why is it that we don't talk about hope that often? It, it seems like, you know, here you have three things, and, and Paul's saying these things are vital. They're all equally vital. And yet, we emphasize two of them, but not the third. But Paul's saying, no, you've got to understand this as much as you've got to, yes, you need to understand faith and love. Now, just in case you think I'm reading too much into this verse, uh, actually, if you go and you again study the Bible, you'll find there are many passages that put these three ideas together, faith, hope, and love. There are many passages that present them as kind of the three essentials of, of what we need to have at the foundation of our walk with Christ. And so when we try to understand, okay, now why is, what is hope and why is it so important? And the first thing is we've got to understand what it is. Because one of the problems is when we use the word, when we hear it in our English language, in our American culture, it has a very different meaning than what the Bible means. And so that's a lot of times we can kind of get confused. See, when we think in our American culture about hope, usually what we're talking about is something that we wish for. 
It's something that we desire, but we, we have, may have little or no control over whether it happens. It may be realistic or unrealistic. And so we often say, well, I hope it's a nice day tomorrow. I hope we have good weather. I hope it's sunny. It's Ohio. Good luck. You know, it's, you know we, we hope, we wish, we desire something. And in fact, a lot of times it's something that we can have a desire for that can be totally unrealistic. So for example, people buy lottery tickets based on the hope that they're going to win. If you didn't have a hope that you'd win, you wouldn't buy it. It would make no sense. Now, it's totally unrealistic. The chances of winning are you know, almost nil, but people spend millions of dollars every week buying lottery tickets based on that hope. And we can even go more unrealistic, more impossible. I'm, I'm going to grow up in Cleveland. I hope the Browns are going to be good one day. I hope they're going to make the playoffs. You know, totally unrealistic expectation, but it's a de desire that I have. So we see that that's how we use it. When the Bible uses the word hope, it has a very different meaning. The Bible doesn't speak of some kind of uncertain desire or dream that we hope that will happen. It talks about something that is a confident expectation of a future promise that's not yet realized. In fact, let me give you a definition that I'm going to put out there. Biblical hope isn't something uncertain we desire in the future. It is the confident expectation of something that is certain but which is not yet realized. It's something that you know is going to happen, but yet you have, don't have it yet. I'll give you examples of that. When you think of hope, that's what drives a young bride who's planning her wedding day. She's looking forward with confidence to this expectation of the celebration. It's not uncertain. It's not just a wish. It's not something she hopes it's going to happen. It's not like, well, I'm buying a dress and I'm you know, doing this and I, I'm just going to show up there and I'm going to hope that it all comes together. I hope a guy shows up. You know, it's no. I mean, she has a hope, an expectation. She knows what's coming, and, and she's driven by that. So she's spending money, and she's doing all this preparation, and she's all excited because of this confident expectation of something that is certain, but yet is not realized. Or think of a woman who's pregnant, and this is the same idea. You know, that what drives her to go through all the pains and discomforts of pregnancy and childbirth, and it's a hope. It's the hope of a baby. And when you say hope, it's not uncertain. It's not that you go to a woman who's pregnant and says, oh, you're pregnant. Yeah, she says, yeah, yeah, it's something in there. I hope it's a baby. I'm not sure what's going to come out. I look forward to seeing what pops out. You know, I really hope it's a baby. No, you know it's a baby. You know what's coming. It's a certainty, but yet not, yet not realized. And again, think of this, how women, for those that are pregnant, you live totally differently based on that. So you're eating differently. You're doing things that you wouldn't otherwise do. You're making all these decisions because you have this confident expectation that's driving the way that you live your life. Now, hope motivates us. In fact, let me go to Romans chapter 8 where Paul uses this imagery. Actually, in verse 22, I didn't have it in here. But right before that, he uses the imagery of pregnancy as our hope. Same idea. Look, then in verse 23, he says, And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who are the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we eagerly await the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. You see, what is our hope? For our adoption, our adoption, redemption, adoption of sons, redemption of our bodies, eternal life. That's our hope. That's what we're saved with. And then he continues, Now hope that is seen is not hope. For, he who, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it patiently. It's something that's confident, but we don't have. So if we have it, we're not hoping for it. 
We're not looking forward to it. We're, we're enjoying it. This is something that we're confident of. We know it's coming, but yet we don't have it, so we hope in the process. Now, this is something, again, that the Bible teaches is vital. It's something that is just important as faith and, and love. In fact, even when you think about what we're going to see this, this morning as we dive into some in Revelation, Revelation is probably the main, you know, main book that talks about this hope, that talks about this eternal hope that we have in Christ, about end times. And, and when, I want you to even think about this, though. If you haven't ever thought about it, think about the context of when the book of Revelation was written. Again, it's written to all of us, but it's always written to a context to a certain group of people, and understanding where that group of people were that were reading it in the original context helps us understand a little bit about it. See, the book of Revelation was written by the Apostle John at the end of the first century. And at the end of the first century, there was an emperor that had taken over in Rome. His name was Domitian. And he was just beginning the first systematic, empire-wide, wide-scale, intense persecution of Christians. This, you know, not, there were some little ones before, but here he is literally starting to go out in all the cities throughout Rome, hunting down Christians, having them put to death, you know, having persecution. John himself is writing in exile because he's been exiled. And, and so here you have the church that's just getting ready for this. In fact, if you go to Revelation 2 and 3, the letters to the churches, see how many of them talk about persecution. Persecution was a reality of what the church was facing. And so then John, by the leading of the Holy Spirit, writes this book in part to this group of people who are facing persecution, and he's talking about hope. He's talking about eternity. He's talking about our, our ultimate standing in Christ and eternity in heaven. And why is that? Because in hard times, we need hope. In hard times, we need to be reminded upon where, you know, what our hope is, where our future is. Why? Because how you handle your present is completely determined by what you believe your future to be. It's going to be defined by your perspective of your future prospects, your future hope. If your hope is something that is so overwhelmingly great... It's going to motivate you and give you endurance to go persevere through the difficulties and hardships. That's, again, you look at the whole question of a woman having going through, why does a woman go through pregnancy and labor and, and pregnancy and, and all that difficulty? Well, because the hope of life is so great that you're willing to go through the unpain, discomfort and pain of pregnancy and delivery. See, and that's the whole idea of what's, what's saying here. And what's the book of Revelation teaching? It's teaching us this, kind of a summation, if you were to get the one-minute you know, version of Revelation. It's saying that we live in a sinful and broken world. Even as believers, we still live in this broken world. And in this broken world on this side of eternity, there's going to be times that it looks and feels as if evil is winning. And God gives us this book to tell us that although there will be those times, we need to know that in everything, God is in control. Remember, the whole book of Revelation is God's book. It's his story that he has written before it happened. And what it's saying is that part of his story includes times that it will feel and seem in the moment as if God is out of control, if evil is winning. There will be times that we are tempted to get discouraged, but don't be surprised, don't be discouraged, because this is all part of God's plan. And even though it feels like he's out of control, no, God is in control. And we know that he's written the final chapter. And we're going to cry out, this is wrong. And the fact is, it is wrong. But the fact is, we know that God's going to set it right. There's a certainty. And not only that, but we realize in the midst of that, that 
that no matter how bad the labor pains are, we know that the ultimate pain, the ultimate joy is this birth into life that is so tremendous that the Bible said it's, it's, gonna, it's gonna make whatever we go through fade in comparison. We're gonna, it's gonna seem like nothing in comparison to the glory that will be revealed. So what is that hope? Well, the first thing that we see in the creed is the hope of our resurrected body. Now, it's not just that, you know, sometimes people think of it as, well, we live forever, our spirit lives forever, and, and a lot of religions teach that, that the body is bad and that we die and that the spirit goes on. And well, what's interesting is the Bible, Christianity, is actually very unusual as far as other religions, where it teaches that the body is resurrected, that we have eternal physical, or a physical eternity. But it's also important to realize that it's not just saying that, that we're brought back to life or that we're just restored to the height of our phys- you know, greatest physical uh, uh, health. It's not just like, okay, I'm going to be resurrected and I'm not, my back's not going to hurt and I'm going to have hair and boy, it's going to be great. And, and you know, it's not just that. It's, it's what it literally teaches is that we will be resurrected and it will be physical. So we will be in a sense like we are, but we're also going to be radically different. We're going to be healed in ways that go beyond just being as healthy as we could have been. Let me take you to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where Paul talks about some of this. Look at what he says in verse 36. He says, you foolish person, what uh, you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not like the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body that he has chosen to each of its kind of the seed of its own body. Now, here's what he's saying. If you want to understand something of the resurrection, go to the backyard. Go and look at a seed. And what you've got to realize, okay, if you have something that needs to come alive, you've got to plant the seed. But also consider the nature of the whole seed. When you think about planting the seed, it's not only that it's dormant until it's planted, but you also think about a seed, and you have a seed. Let's take, for example, you take a little acorn. You've got a little acorn that you can hold in your hand, and it seems like it's tiny. It's nothing. It's insignificant. And the amazing thing is that if you plant that acorn, in that acorn, there's everything that is required to eventually grow to be this giant uh, giant tree. And you may look at that and you say, the acorn is something, but here you have this great oak that's providing shade, and this is incredible. And how in the world did that happen? Well, when it was planted, by God unleashed this stuff that was inside so that it became that. And here's what he's saying. You want to understand something about your resurrection? All we are is the acorn. And when we die, the acorn, God's going to resurrect us so that we're going to be, you know, if you want to understand it, it's going to become like an acorn to an oak tree. That's what's going to happen in our body. You can't even imagine that, what God's going to do. He continues and he explains it more in going to verse 41. And there is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars for star, for star differ from star and glory. And so it was with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised in is imperishable. What we start with is perishable. Uh, our body is dying. You know, our body's winding down. You know, anybody, if you're 40 and above, you know that especially. You know, I, I'm convinced that it's like 40, it's like the warranty expires and things start breaking. And they just don't, you know, and, and, it, and, the, and I'm in mid-50s now and it doesn't, doesn't slow down. They keep breaking more and more. And it doesn't bounce back like it used to do. And so the body is dying. And, and, but it's what was... What was now perishable is imperishable. 
continues. Not only that, it's sown in dishonor. It's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness. It's raised in power. It's sown in a natural body. It's raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. So so we're sown in dishonor. Think about our bodies. There are things that are dishonorable. You know what happened this morning? We all got up and we're aware of our dishonor. And our bodies stink. And so we took a bathed in some way to wash off some of the stink and we put on perfume or cologne or aftershave and and we have parts of us that are dishonorable that we had to cover up so people don't see because part of us are dishonorable our new bodies don't have that it it, it was sown in weakness it's limited now we're raised in power it was a natural body it's raised a spiritual part body that we're radically different one way to even say that is you interact with somebody that's handicapped and you say, okay, what would they be like in heaven when they don't have that handicap? And man, I can't wait to see. When you realize, hey, we're all handicapped. You know, it's not like, okay, you're going to see some people and man, they're going to be so radically different in heaven and I'm going to be the same. No, I'm going to change as much as they do. And it's going to be amazing who we are in heaven. And that's, we're just the acorn now. And that leads into this bigger picture. It's not only that we believe in the resurrection of the body, but we then have this physical body that lives in eternity with God, this, this hope of life everlasting. And that's where we're going to go to, to, uh, go to, to Revelation 21. Now, now, here's the problem when we get into Revelation. Is anybody has ever studied Revelation, it's a very unusual type of literature. It's, it's called apocalyptic. And apocalyptic literature is marked by all kinds of unusual imagery. Often it combines images. So we're going to see like in Revelation 21 verse 2 that it, that it describes the city of heaven coming down dressed in a wedding gown. Like cities don't wear dresses, you know, it just is kind of like, what's that mean? And, um, and so we're trying to figure out these images. So I, I'll even try to illustrate this. I, when my boys were young, I came across a, a Lego Bible which is kind of, it's kind of kid's Bible, and then it has, the, instead of pictures that are hand-drawn, it has Legos, and it has, it's like, oh, that's really cute. And uh, it's, you know, maybe interested in reading it, and, and, and I thought it was really cute until I came to the book of Revelation, and then it went from kind of cute to kind of scary, um, because it builds Lego images of all these really weird um, symbolic descriptions. So in Revelation 5, there, it talks about four living creatures that are standing before the throne of God and that they each have seven eyes and, and you know, and, and seven horns. And I mean, so that's what it built. Now I look at that and that doesn't make me feel excited or peaceful about heaven. That's kind of weird looking. Um, in Revelation 12, it describes, you know, this great dragon with, you know, seven heads. I don't want, I don't want to read that to my kids at bedtime. You know, that's not going to help them sleep well. Or a or really weird one, Revelation 13, it describes this beast. And this beast is this earthly leader uh, that opposes Christ. But it describes him rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads and ten diadems on his head. And, and, uh, and then it says that, you know, that the people followed after the beast. Well, if you actually build a picture of the beast, that's what that beast looks like. You know, it's like, that doesn't look like a main leader that you look at. I mean, that's kind of weird looking. And... Uh, so you try to say, okay, if that's how the book of Revelation is, how do I understand, not only that, how do I understand even heaven? How do I understand the imagery of this hope that the, heaven, heaven, uh, the Revelation describes? So let's go to uh, Revelation 21, starting in verse 1. It says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw a holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for a husband. Here's that city wearing a wedding dress. It's that imagery. 
And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And that's the core, is when you look at that, when we were created, we were created for relationship with God. And so Adam and Eve walked with God in the garden, and then we sinned, and we were kicked out of the garden, and we were, had to bring cover, and that relationship was broken. And now, in this side of eternity, God forgives my sin, so I have a beginning relationship with God, but I don't dwell with God in this way. And what it's saying is that here in heaven, that's, that's the more you know, primary thing, is that we're going to be there with God. We're going to be experiencing that relationship with him and all the joy and all the intimacy and all the meaning and all the fulfillment that comes with it. We will live the lives that we were created for. But it continues on, verse 4. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither there shall be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Now, when I read that, you know, I think pastorally, okay, how many times have I been with people where they've been crying, where death has been a reality, where there's, it's not only mourning over death, how many things do we mourn over in life? And we live and experience that brokenness. And I want to tell you, when we mourn and we struggle, you know, part of the reason why is we struggle and we go through that period of, you know, somebody gets cancer, somebody passes away, we experience betrayal, we experience brokenness, we experience pain. And there's something in our soul that cries out, this shouldn't be. This, you know, why is this? This shouldn't be. This, there's something in us that wants to reject it. And that's why even people struggle with God. God, this shouldn't be. God, you can't be here. And we reject it. And you know why we do? Because deep down, we, were, we know that we weren't created for this world, this kind of brokenness. And we weren't. If you study and you understand the whole picture of the Bible, we were created for the Garden of Eden. We were created for a relationship with God, where we walked with him, where there was no sin, there was no death, there was no sadness, there was no brokenness. That's what we were created for. And when we experience that kind of brokenness, we cry out, we reject it because there's part of us that longs for Eden. We long to go back to that, some, that part of us that deep in our soul, we know that's where we belong. We long for this world without sickness and death, without betrayal and abuse, a world without sin. We long to go there because our souls were created for that. That's what it says in Ecclesiastes 3.11, that God has put eternity into man's hearts. There's something in our hearts that long for that eternity, that long for that perfection. And it's not just for those who are believers. Unbelievers long for it in the same way. And too often we strive to find it in this world. But the fact is we'll never find it in this world. Because we don't live in Eden. We live in a world that is marred by sin. And when we experience or we expect the perfection of Eden, we will always be frustrated and disappointed we're going to struggle and we're going to ask why. We're looking for heaven. Now, one of the things is there's the realities that some of you heard me say before. These are so important to remember. If you are a believer, you see, we long for heaven, but we live in the brokenness of this world. And what that means is that we're experiencing the brokenness and pain of sin in a way that when we're, when we're resurrected and with Christ, that's removed. This is as close to hell as we're ever going to become. On the other hand, if you're not a believer, here's a hard reality. In this world, you have the brokenness of sin that is mixed with the image of God that is in this created world. So there's still love, there's still peace, there's still images of God, even if for those who reject him. 
Well, if you die apart from relationship with God and you go to a place where God is not at all, well, you've got to realize this is as close to hell or heaven as you will ever become. This, for a believer, this is as close to hell as we'll ever get. For an unbeliever, this is as close to heaven as you'll ever get, unless you accept Christ, unless you recognize, okay, God, I need you. I need a relationship with you. I need what only you can provide. For a believer, what we've got to realize is that there's part of us that cry out, this shouldn't be. Part of us cries out in the brokenness, I long for eternity, I long for Eden. And the good news is, as a Christian, we're going to get it. We're going to get Eden. We're going to get the, you know, the perfect place that we long for, that thing that, that our soul cries out for. And here's what's wonderful. If you really understand that, that allows us to be able to enjoy this world far more. You know why? Because I don't need this world to fulfill all my desires. I don't need my wife to be the perfect wife that totally makes me happy. I don't need my kids to be perfect. I don't need to get everything thing that I dream for. I don't need that stuff. I can enjoy the blessings that I have and realize that in the frustration of the brokenness of the world, all those dreams are going to be fulfilled in eternity. I'm going to get heaven. The good news is I'm going to get heaven. The bad news is I'm not going to get heaven until I get heaven. But the good news is I'm going to get heaven. But if I understand that, I don't need this world to be heaven. Where so often you see people apart from Christ, they're striving for meaning. They're striving to squeeze something more out of this life because they're trying to get it to fulfill all their desires, all their needs. And my friends, this broken world never will. And our brokenness is the very thing that Ecclesiastes tells us that drives us back to this reality that, that our satisfaction is not in this world, but it's outside of this world and only what God can provide. God has put eternity in our hearts. And so what he calls us to do is he calls us to, to pursue that, to pursue that in him. Do you understand what that means? There's this incredible, you know, an incredible idea of, of, you know, of what the Bible teaches. I'm, I'm, I apologize here. I just, I, I just messed up my notes here. Um, I've got to go back and find my, where I was. Um, sorry about that. I've never had this happen before. But there we go. Um, but, you know, the Bible teaches that we've got to, you know, understand this, this imagery. Now, let's go to the imagery that what we see here. The imagery that we see that is described here in, 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 um, in, in, um, in, in Revelation. What, what does it say? You know, that we have this, uh, be this place, there's no, no mourning, no pain, no, no death, that we will get the Eden that we long for. If you want a little bit more, let's look at some of this imagery that's kind of so unusual, and you're trying to figure out what it means. Go down to verse 18. It says, The wall was built of jasper while the city was pure gold. Like clear glass, the foundations of the walls were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, and he goes on, and he goes, these 12 jewels. Then in verse 21, the 12 gates were 12 pearls, and the gates made of a single pearl, and the streets of the city were pure gold like transparent glass. Now, you look at that, and you say, okay, here's this description, and do we have a picture? Okay, what's the Lego Bible look like in that? And Well, here's what you've got to realize, that all this is imagery. Now, may there, you know, the walls be of jasper and the streets of gold, maybe, but that's not, the pick, that's not the main point. It's imagery. Here's the imagery, and this is so beautiful. This is so incredible. Okay, what's it say? That the walls are made out of gemstones. The 
gates are made out of giant pearls and the streets are made out of gold. Now, in this world, what are walls made out of? Generally, let's say stone. The walls, gates, you know, they're made out of stone. Gates are made out of wood. Streets are made out of dirt. Now, the most base things that we have in this world are stone, wood, and dirt. You know, the dirt's what we walk on. And here's what it's saying. You want to understand heaven? All we can do to describe heaven is that I can describe the base things. I can describe the stone and the wood and the dirt. If you want to know about heaven, well, the stone, well, those are your gemstones. The most precious stones that you can think of, well, that's the, the, that's the, that's the stone. That's what you build walls with. And the most precious of this great pearl of great price, well, that's the gate. That's the wood. And if you want to know the dirt of heaven, the dirt of heaven is gold. And so the most precious things you can find on earth, that's the dirt and the wood and the stone of heaven. So do you want to know about heaven? All I can do is that I can tell you about the dirt. That's all. So if you can understand the dirt, what you realize is the good things you can't even begin to understand. That's the whole point. So often people talk about, well, I'm going to play golf in heaven. It's going to be this. It's going to be, you know, it's like, it's going to be, heaven's like Disney World. Like, you want to walk, stand in lines in heaven? You know, like, what's the deal? It's like, no, heaven's not like Disney World. It's not like anything you can imagine. In fact, why is it described often as the wedding feast? Because for many of us, it's like, man, our wedding day is the best day of our life. And it's like, okay, you want to talk about heaven? Take your best day of your life. And that's the beginning point. And that includes the physical part of the wedding day. And even the sexual union and then the intimacy and the pleasure. And it's using that imagery and saying, you want to understand about heaven? Go there and you start to understand a little bit about what heaven's going to be like. And I can only begin. The good parts, you know, you can't even, you, go, you just get, do the dirt. You can't even get beyond that. But my friends, it's going to be so incredible, so awesome that our minds are unable to comprehend that. And that's what it's describing. It's a future hope, but there's also a present tense, a present deposit, because it's not just, okay, one day we're living for that, and one day God's going to bless us, and, and here we just persevere and endure. Now, look at look what it says, verse 5. And he who is seated on the throne says, behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I want you to notice that he says this, and he doesn't say, I will make all these things new. That's not what he says. What does he say? I am making all these new. I am making all this. And what it dealt, it's done. I want you to understand what that means. It means that not only that God will make all things new so that we will have that perfection in body, we will have that perfection relationship with Christ, but in the here and now, we get a little tiny taste of it. That through the gospel, God is beginning the process of making things new so that he's restoring our relationship with God. He's restoring, if we have a relationship with him, he begins to restore relationships with the other people. You should have better marriages. You should have better relationships with your kids. You should have a better appreciation of your finances and wealth, a better enjoyment of life. The more that you dive in your relationship with Christ, it's not just that one day you find fulfillment. It's that in the here and now, he begins to make all things new so that you begin to experience the blessings of eternity, even in the here and now. So pursue that. But then how do we get that? Well, look at what he says. He says that it's through grace. We'll go back to verse 6 now. He says, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from springs of the water of life without payment. 
Who does he give this to? To the good, to the moral, to the religious, to the people that work hard? No, to the thirsty. How do we get it? We admit our need. Again, Christianity isn't about religion. It isn't about performance. It isn't about doing good. It's not about trying hard. It's about admitting our need and saying, God, I agree with you. I'm a sinner. I need your forgiveness. I need your grace. I'm thirsty. I need you to be in my water. My friends, if you're here today and you don't have a relationship with Christ, if you're not sure where you're going after you die, if you're not sure that heaven's your confident expectation of hope, I want you to realize that Christ today invites you to relationship with him so that you can know that you have this, that it is what you can confidently expect. And how do you get there? Not by performance, not by trying, not by being, but by saying, God, I agree with you. I need a relationship with you. That, that all the things of the world seek to satisfy me, God, they're all going to come back empty. God, I, I, I admit to you I'm thirsty. I need you. I ask you to forgive my sins. I ask you to forgive me through what Jesus Christ has done. I ask you to be the leader and Lord of my life. I want to follow you as my God. And my friends, as you seek him in that way, as you come to him thirsty, he gives this to those who are thirsty. Now, just briefly, in it, wrapping up, is practically, if we understand this, what is the impact? See, it's important. hope is so important. It drives us. If you have hope, it will totally change the way that you live. Again, let me give you another example. You could take a couple college students, and one goes away, and they, you know, they have fun, they party, they drop out, they you know, fail after a semester. Another one goes and is so committed and studies. And Why? Well, the difference is hope. You see, I understand that my, my son-in-law, you know, he, he studied through school. He's, you know, he's you know, borrowing money. He's disciplining himself. Why? He's in medical school. And why is he saying no to all these things? Why is he working so hard? Because he has a hope. He's driven by, I want to be a doctor. And I'm willing to sacrifice all these things because my future yes is so great that I'm willing to say no to all these things in the here and now. On the other hand, you have people that they have no hope. What they, I hope to have fun. I hope to get a party. I hope to, you know, and the fact is because they have no sense of future vision, you're going to live for the here and now. As Christians, it's our hope that drives us. It drives us and it changes our life because it means that we're living for the right things, the right treasure. And the question is, what is the treasure that we're living for? We all live for something. We're all, even the college, they're living for the hope of tomorrow, the hope of the party. And we've got to look at our lives. The fact, if we're living for worldly things, not even sinful things, if we're living for just the things of this world, the reason is because we're driven by a worldly hope. The ultimate reality is what the world has to offer. And so whether it's that temptation or whether it's just meaningful relationships or whether it's a job, or that's what's most real to me, so that's what drives me. On the other hand, if I'm driven for spiritual things, if I live for the kingdom of God, it's because more real to me is the hope of eternity. And if I'm not living for eternal things, if I'm really not giving that much attention to it, it's because spiritual things aren't, my, that's not my hope. Look what Paul says about this in Titus. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to still have self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. How do we say no to sinful things? How do we say yes to right, right things? How? While we wait for the hope, the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We're driven by our hope. It's what drives us. When we hope energizes us to say no to sin in order to say yes to God. It's what Jesus talked about in Matthew 6 when he talked about, you know, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break and steal. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. 
do we have the right hope? And if we have the right hope, it will not only allow us to, in a sense, say no to sin, but it will drive us to live meaningful lives. It, lives, it will be the motivation. Because again, if you look at it and you say, we started off and you talk about what is it that drives an athlete? What is it that drives the Olympians? What is it that drives them to discipline themselves, to push themselves, to, you know, to, to go to their ultimate edge? It's they have hope. They have hope. They have this incredible sense of, I'm doing this to win this prize. I'm doing this to accomplish this goal. And look at what Paul says about this in this imagery, using that same imagery, talking about the Olympic Games from way back when in 1 Corinthians 9. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things, but they do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an unperishable. They're driven by a hope. We have the ultimate hope. They're driven by something that they think has some value. We're driven by the thing that has ultimate value. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as in one beating the air, but I discipline my body. I keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. He's driven by that hope. He continued to say the same thing in 1 Timothy. Have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. Rather, train yourselves for godliness. What drives us to train ourselves? For bodily training is some value. We're driven, why do I exercise? I have a hope, I want to be healthier. It has some value, but godliness is of value in every way. It holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving full acceptance. For to this end, we toil and strive because we have a hope set on the living God who is the savior of all people, especially of those who believe. We're driven by that hope. My, my friends, just closing question is this. What is the hope that's driving your life? We're all driven by something. What is the hope that's driving you? And we can see that by what we're living for. You see, if we're living for things in the world, then, then practically our hope is the world's promises. And if we're, we say, I want to live for the things of eternity, well, then I've got, to reach, I've got to refix my hope. I've got to spend some more time thinking, man, God, help me to fall in love with the eternity that you promised me. Help, me, help that to be my motivation. See, the question we've got to ask is, to what degree are you driven by your heavenly hope? Is that something that's driving us? I tell you, I want to live a life by God's grace. I hope I pray and live a life that is exceptional, that I run the race. Not only run the race, I run it to win. But how will I do that? By fixing my eyes on my hope, as Paul did, as Christ did. And I hope that you will join me in that race in pursuit of that prize. I'm going to close in prayer, and then we're going to end in song before we, we uh, end with the, uh, the, the meeting uh, but even in the song, let me just encourage you. We've, this is a song that we've done a few times. It's, it's a song really affirming the Apostles' Creed. We've been talking about this. And I hope it's not only something that, you know, that, that we're affirming this idea of our biblical hope, but everything that we've looked at, that we can stand together and we can say, these are the things that I believe. Everything that in Creed is in this song. And it's a way of us proclaiming in the end of this series, this is what we believe. This is what unites us. This is what defines us as followers of Christ. Thanks for joining us. If you have any questions about what we talked about, Jesus Christ, our church, or anything else, connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or by email. We'd love to hear from you.